All right, as you're opening up your Bible to Joshua chapter 9, we're going to begin our time in God's Word with prayer, asking for His help to understand and apply this. Uh, pray that His Word would strike deeply into our hearts and, and change us, convict us, and uh, awaken fresh joy in Him even this night. Let's pray together. Father God in heaven, we pray that you would be mighty through your word in us. We pray that you would help us to see our sins and our shortcomings and our failures and our fallings in light of the truth of the gospel. And we pray that you would make us faithful even in our failings tonight through your word. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's a risky business that you probably shouldn't take on yourself, but if you ever do find yourself watching TV in the middle of the night, you will know well the infamous infomercial. Infomercials are notoriously late-night TV staples. Uh, Infomercials are even better, believe it or not, better, yes, better than a regular commercial. They are an extended commercial with a salesman dedicated for three hours to selling you this uh, thing that you need in your life. And of course, there's a sales pitch that also includes urgency. Call now and we will double it. These, this this, this uh, uh, genre of commercial probably attracts some of the best uh, salesmen you'll ever see. But there is no better salesman than the greatest infomercial salesman himself. And that is uh, Vince Offer with the amazing Sham Wow. Be prepared to be pulling out your phones and ordering the amazing chamois as you watch this incredible video. But before you begin, wait a second, uh, just uh, can you spot, can you spot his tactics? How is he sneaky good? How is he, how is he kind of maybe not telling you all the truth about the product he is offering, but how is he compelling? How is he tempting how does he make you want to buy a ShamWow? Let's watch this. This, this the greatest infomercial of all time. Uh, have you seen this? Has anybody? anybody? Yeah. No? Okay, all right. All right. Every time you use this towel, it's like a shammy, it's like a towel, it's like a sponge. A regular towel doesn't work wet. This works wet or dry. This is for the house, the car, the boat. The RV. ShamWow holds 20 times its weight in liquid. Look at this. It just does the work. Why do you want to work twice as hard? Doesn't trip. Doesn't make a mess. Bring it out. You wash it in the washing machine. Made in Germany. You know the Germans always make good stuff. You can cut it. One is a bath mat. Bring dishes with the other one. Use one as a towel. Olympic divers. They use it as a towel. Look at that. Completely dry. Put a wet sweater. Roll it up and dries your sweaters. Here's some cola. Wine, coffee, cola, head stain. Not only is the damage going to be on top. There's your Milton. That is going to smell. See that? The most exciting. We're going to do this in real time. Look at this. Put on the spill. Turn it over. Without even putting any pressure. 50% of the cola right there. You following me, camera guy? You all 50%. The cola starts to come off. No other towel is going to do that. It acts like a vacuum. And look at this. Virtually drawing the bottom. Whoa. I can't live without it. Sorry. Oh my gosh, 
I don't know, sells itself. The Shan Wild sells for $19.95. But you get one for the house, one for the car, two for the kitchen and bathroom. But if you call now, within the next 20 minutes, and you can't do this all day, we'll give you a second set, absolutely free. So that's eight Shan Wilds for $19.95. It comes with a 10 year warranty. Here's how to order. Oh man, I could watch that guy all day. Um, and honestly, I really want to order one of those ShamWows. It's just every time. I know what he's doing to me, and I still want to order. Um, how, how, was, how was he uh, uh, sneaky, maybe a little deceitful in the presentation of the, the sham? Haircut. What? The haircut. The haircut. That is number one. Why I don't trust him. Anybody that does that with their hair. No offense, Jack. But, uh, no, wait. <laughs> okay. Uh, any other things? Any other things? Did you, did you spot? Misdirection. That's right. Notice how the camera cuts uh, just randomly while he's throwing the rag over the carpet piece. I watched it closely, and it's true. Any any, any other things? Any other things? I saw that. Like the cuts are. Yeah. Cut a little well, the just although I did see some other demonstrations that sort of sort of proved it a little bit, but yeah. So a little a little cuts there. Also the the whole ploy like call now and I'll give you uh, double you know for the same price. But we can't do this all day. What? Uh, so, and, and, but, but how was he tempting? How, how was it like, man, I really want one of these things? What was it that was compelling about his arguments? Yes? It works on anything. Man, I want something that works on anything. It sells itself. Yeah. Anything else? We all use it. We all, we all, you're going to use it, right? You're going to spend this on the same. Yeah, right, exactly. That's, that's compelling. Might as well try it. You're in, when he starts defaming you, you have to. You're insulted. Yes. What were you going to say? Yeah. You never have to. A 10-year warranty? Wow. What? It may, I mean, like, I don't want mildew stains under my carpet. All I have to do is lay this on there, and it just vacuums up. That's the literal words he said. It just sucks up. Does anybody own a ShamWow? Do you do? My dad was sold by these commercials. He was? In the early 2000s, any infomercial, like Debbie Meyer Remax, ShamWows, anything that sprays. <laughs> anything that sprays. And then he put his name on it, of course. Craw. Okay. All right. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so did it work? Does it work? Yeah, they work. Do they? They actually under the carpet. Do they work under the carpet? I don't think they work under the carpet. That one's a little bit scratchy. Yeah. Okay. So, so there's, 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 some, there's some question on the carpet. Okay. Any, any other piece? Oh, you, yeah, that was what you were going to say. A year warranty? Ten. Ten year warranty. Yeah. Okay. All right. It's made in Germany. It's made in Germany. And you know that Germany's got good stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. No. And nothing. Nothing like that. Hey, hey, we're going to learn. I, I would say he's a sneaky good salesman. There's some compelling features to it. And I think it probably does work. I'm not sure about, what was it, 50, 20 times the, the weight? I don't know what that was. There's some, there's some sneaky, compelling salesmanship perhaps going on here. Um, but tonight, I want to... Take a few of your uh, minutes of your life to learn some lessons from another sneaky good salesman. So we're going to meet another sneaky good salesman in Joshua chapter nine. Joshua chapter nine. Let's read the first. Let's read the first five verses here to kind of get the context a little bit about where we're at. Joshua nine verse one. Now it happened when all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the Shephelah, and on all the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon. The Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusites, when they all heard of it, they gathered 
themselves together with one accord to fight with Joshua and with Israel. Now the inhabitants of, of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, and they also acted uh, craft, uh, craftily and went and traveled as envoys and took worn-out sacks on their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended and worn out and patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes on themselves and all the bread of their provision was dry and was crumbled. Here's some sneaky good snailsmen perhaps, but let's just uh, set a little context. Remember, Israel, Israel has just... Um, uh, experienced a great uh, conquest already. It's already beginning to start. They've crossed the Red Sea, and they've also now conquered Jericho. They've conquered Ai. They've, they've had nothing but victory. That's what these kings are responding to. And remember, the book of Joshua is history with a sledgehammer, right? It is, it is history meant to paint you into a corner, a theological corner. You are supposed to be painted into this corner and say to yourself, this is love so amazing, so divine, it demands, it demands of me my soul, my life, and my all. That's what Joshua was supposed to do. It's supposed to be painting you into a corner of what the faithfulness of God. This God is someone who demands my total, my total life. It, it means, in a, in a parallel way, if you're a Christian, you're not just, uh, you can't just call yourself a Christian if you, you know, say you're a Christian, if you come to church on Sunday, if you've got a fish on the back of your car, that doesn't make you a Christian. You are a Christian if your whole life, your mind, your soul, your life is dominated by the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He is a demanding Lord and he will, he will accept no other followers. He will not know you unless your whole life is dominated by him and by his Lordship. And this is what Joshua was trying to say. He's trying to say this. Look at the faithfulness of God. Who will you serve? Who will you serve? Now, Israel, once again, has, has busted through the Jordan. They've busted through Jericho. All Canaan is fearful in the sight of them. You, you will notice something, a little bit of a shift here. Notice, before we were told that the Canaanites were, were kind of hiding out in their cities in fear of Israel. But now, look at this. They're forming a coalition, an alliance. There's some sort of, there's some sort of, uh, confidence that they have. Maybe it was hearing of the defeat at I. Maybe that's what's giving them confidence. Maybe they're just like, we, we've got to do something. Might as well just uh, pull all of our resources together and attack Israel head on. Either way, they're forming a coalition. But you also see in verse 3 that they're they're all together except one group, one group of Hivites. They're called they're called the Gibeonites. And, and you learn something about the Gibeonites um, from chapter 10 of Joshua, actually. We see that they are a major and significant city. Chapter 10, verse 2 says they were, they were a great city, like a royal city, in fact. This was a city with armaments, with soldiers, with, with warriors. Uh, they were not like the cities of Ai or Jericho. Jericho and, and Ai were small cities. Uh, Gibeon was a big city. It was an impressive city. It was a significant city. Matter of fact, if you look on a map, Gibeon is right on the route um, that, that protects kind of the whole entire southern country from the Israelite advance. And it also is on the route that protects the whole coastal plain from the Israelite advance as well. Gibeonite is a huge city, and it's a significant city as well. 
And it is the next city kind of on Israel's march. Matter of fact, it's about 18 miles, 18 miles away from where Israel's at at Gilgal right now. Um, that's about a, about a day's brisk walk. Very brisk. I don't know how brisk of walkers you are. But uh, if, if, the, if the time is right, if the season's nice, you can do it maybe in a day or so. But this would be no Sunday stroll, as we'll learn about next week. And, and basically, what is Gibeon uh, trying to do here? Uh, they're trying to be sneaky salesmen. And notice, they, they get all of, the, all of the supplies ready for their sales pitch. What are they trying to do? They are trying to present themselves, and we'll see this in a minute, as people that are not from around here. They're trying to present themselves as not Gibeon, but a nation far, far away. And a nation that's had to travel quite some distance to get to Israel. Let's keep reading now in verse 6 of chapter 9. And, and they, that's Gibeon, went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country. So now, cut a covenant with us. Then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, uh, just a little irony there, by the way, Hivites. It's like the narrator saying, they're Hivites. Yeah, they say to the Hivites, perhaps you are living within our land. How then shall we cut a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, oh, we are your servants. Then Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? Uh, they said to him, your servants have come from a very far country because of the fame of Yahweh your God, for we have heard the report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sion, king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, Take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Now then, cut a covenant with us. Verse 12, This bread of ours was warm when we took it for our provisions out of our house on the day that we left to come to you. But now behold, it is dry and has become crumbled. And look, these wineskins which we filled were new. And behold, they are torn. And these clothes of ours and our sandals are worn out because of the very long journey. So Israel has a choice to make here. How are they going to... How are they going to decide this? How are they going to discern what these men uh, want and who they are? Now, they do have some rules of engagement to follow here. And we could jump over really quick to like Deuteronomy 7. And Deuteronomy 7 verse 2, Yahweh basically says to his people, You shall strike down all the inhabitants of the land. You shall form no covenant with them at all. Pretty clear cut. But there's also some rules of engagement over in Deuteronomy 20, beginning in verse 10. Deuteronomy 20. And I'll just kind of summarize this for you. Basically, Moses says, hey, when you're in the land, if you're ever um, um, pursuing uh, military action against a city, this is, this is the order that you're going to uh, follow. You're going to first um, give peace terms to the city. You're going to say, hey, give up and give us all your stuff and, uh, and we, will, we will enslave you. Uh, and basically, you'll become our vassals. 
Um, if they don't do this, uh, Deuteronomy 20 says, basically, you are to take the city, destroy it, uh, kill every man who breathes with the end of the sword, the, the women, the little ones, the animals, they'll be yours for spoil. And, and, but, but Moses is clear here, and the Lord is clear in, in chapter 20, verse 15. Thus uh, you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not of the cities of these nations nearby. Then verse 16, only in the cities of these people that Yahweh your God is giving you as an inheritance, you shall leave alive anything that breathes, but you shall devote them to destruction, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perzite, the Hivite, the Jebusites, as Yahweh your God has commanded you. And of course, then there's verse 8, which is the reason for this. They could teach you their ways and you could turn against your God. So notice this. There's, there's rules of engagement. If you are attacking a city that's far away from you, you offer them terms of peace. You, you, you allow them to live. You don't, you don't wipe them out completely, unless, of course, they resist you. But if it is a nation among the peoples in the land, you are to show no mercy at all. So there's rules of engagement. But these Gibeonites, they appear to be smart and they appear to be sneaky. Notice their, their art of de- uh, deception here. No, notice their, their, their sneaky salesmanship. Notice, first off, back in Joshua, chapter 9, notice their buttery speech. Notice, three times they say, we are your servants. Buttery speech. And there's even this suggestion of a covenant, of a treaty. And it's not like a, a peer-to-peer kind of covenant. They're not asking for, hey, treat us as your equals. Notice they're saying, we will serve you. We will be your servants. They're asking to become a vassal state of Israel. They're saying, we will be under you. We will covenant ourselves to you if you will covenant to be our, our Lord, so to speak, and be over us and protect us if someone tries to attack us. How does this butter up? They're, 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 they're pointing all the fingers back at Israel. Look at your greatness. Look at your power. Look at your strength. You, you already have people coming to you asking to be your slaves, your servants. That, that's buttery speech. But notice also they're, they're what we'll call busted sneakers. They give you empirical evidence that they have come from a long distance. As a matter of fact, verses 12 and 13 is kind of the end of their argument. And hey, just happen to look at this. Our clothes are worn out, our food is dry, and our shoes are busted. Right? They give empirical evidence. And how is this sneaky? Israel's going to say, surely my eyes aren't deceiving me, right? But notice also their, their biblical smell, right? They've got buttery speech, they've got busted sneakers, but they've also got a biblical smell about them. They have heard about Yahweh and his great deeds, his attributes, his might. They have heard of the Exodus. They've heard of the Transjordan. Kind of sounds like Rahab a little bit, right? They've heard of the Lord. This must be a good thing. Actually, notice there what they don't say. Uh, They don't say what they're really scared about. They didn't mention Jericho, and they didn't mention I either. Because that would kind of show that they're close by, right? They, they, they mention events that are, 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 have a little bit of a distance behind them, right? We have heard of the greatness of, our, of your God. And nothing stirs up the hearts of people than hearing about the greatness of their God, right? Oh, maybe this is another Rahab situation. This is great. 
These people love the Lord. How can they be wrong? How can they be false? And they also, you could say this as well, look a little bit like Israel. Now notice, they, re- they refer to themselves as coming under the authority of their elders. They don't refer to a king or anything like that. I don't, I don't totally know if that's what's going on, but they sound like Israel. They're, they're ruled by elders and leaders in that way. And, and in this time, especially in Canaan, everybody had a king. I had a king even, right? Surely Gibeon had a king. But they make themselves look like Israelites, sound like Israelites. They even seem to know the exact words to say, right? Their, their words, their speech, emphasize as if they're quoting from Deuteronomy 20 itself, right? We have come from a far away country, very far. What's so sneaky about this smell? Well, I would say to you, God's people naturally want to be compassionate. God's people naturally want to be merciful. God's people naturally want to believe someone is a true follower of God. That is a natural desire on God's people's part. And what's Israel's choice here? Do we believe them or do we not believe them? If we don't believe them, what are we going to do? Kill them? They're sneaky. They're sneaky good with their busted uh, sneakers, buttery speech, and biblical smell. Now, I would say this, their deceit isn't airtight. I, I, don't, I don't think this is totally the case. I would say deceit never is airtight. There's always kind of flaws a little bit in deceit itself. Israel uh, could have done well to ponder a few questions, like you and I would do well to ponder a few questions about a sham wow. Uh, maybe, maybe a good question that Israel could have asked themselves is, why do these people who claim to be so far away seem to know so much about us and our laws especially our warfare loss. Or how about this? Oh, why do they never answer our direct questions when we ask them, like, where are you from? Uh, you, you'd never hear of the place. You'd never hear of it. Just tell us the name. No, no, no. You'd never know. You'd never know. But we're your servants. Uh, why Why do they, do they shine with flattery more than they seem to shine with faith? Uh, or here's an interesting one. I don't, I'm not sure if there's anything to this in verse 10. Uh, why do they refer to Sion and Og as the kings beyond the river? That's Canaanite language for speaking of Sion and Og. Once again, deceit never is totally uh, airtight. There are some cracks in it. And Israel, we even see in verse 7, is suspicious, aren't they? Uh, they would have done well to ask some questions. They would have done particularly well to ask one question. Does our God ever give us an option for how to deal with a situation like this? Does, does our God give us instruction for how we can make discernment in an in a unclear situation, unclear circumstance? Because God actually does. In Numbers 27, 21, God gives Moses instructions for ordaining Joshua so that the people will know that God's going to speak through Joshua. And they can have confidence in Joshua's leadership. Uh, Joshua is promised to have access to God through God's priest so that Joshua can go to God and get understanding for situations. This is what it says in Numbers 27, 21. Um, He, that's Joshua, shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by judgment of the Urim before Yahweh. At his command, they shall go out, and at his command, they shall come in, both he and the sons of Israel with him, even all of the congregation. 
Notice, Joshua has access to the instruction of God so that when he speaks, when he commands, literally the word there is when he, when, when he, when, when he uses his mouth, when he mouths, the people know this is the very mouth of the Lord. There was a way for Israel to get a yes or no answer to situations like this. All they'd have to do is go to the Eliezer the priest and say, are these people from far away? No. Okay. You guys are liars. And we know that because the mouth of the Lord is with Joshua. But Israel didn't do that, did they? Now, the question is, the question is asked, why, why did Israel fail? Verse 14, let's read it right there. Verse 14, so the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask for the command of Yahweh. Why did Israel fail? Why did they take their provisions, but not take counsel with the Lord? I would say this, it's, it's not actually because they didn't ask good questions. I know there was a lot of questions they could have asked, but really they, they used their their abilities to make a judgment call pretty well. They're they're fairly careful, humanly speaking. They asked a few questions. They could have been a little bit more discerning. But from their understanding, from their observations, they were actually thinking through the issues a little bit. And and it seemed convincing. The evidence seemed convincing, right? But I would say they failed because they chose to remain alone in their thinking about this. They, they, they failed because they simply chose to use human judgment, human wisdom to make a conclusion on this case. And here's a definition of prayer if you ever wanted one, right? Prayer is thinking through your life with God. Prayer is thinking about your life with God. Prayer is saying, I, I don't know everything. There is a spiritual component of life that I don't understand, and I need God to mercifully, graciously reveal His wisdom to me. And I need to be open to that need. I need to be humble to that need. They failed because they, they didn't recognize the weaknesses of their pretty good human judgment. Let's return to that sham wow for a second. Uh, that commercial, I think, tricks me the most. It, uh, I mean, it works, sort of, according to Emily's testimony. Uh, it tricks me the most by the satisfied customers. These people wouldn't lie to me, right? They're holding a sham wow in their hands and telling me I'd be an idiot if I didn't also have a sham wow. I want to think the best about people. And, and I especially want to believe people when they're trying to sell me something that I really want. Don't you? That's how you are too. I want to believe you when you're selling me something that I want. I, I want your praise. I, I want this glory that I'm receiving from you. So I, I want to believe you. Isn't that also true spiritually in so many ways, right? I want this teacher to be telling me the truth, so I'm going to believe him. I want this book to be telling me the truth, so I'm going to believe it. I want this teaching to be telling me the truth, so I'm going to believe it. Right? I want it to be true, and that's so compelling when I want something. That seems to be where Israel was at, too. Notice they took, they were convinced by what 
their senses, their reasoning, their judgment was telling them, even though even that was flawed and we can even see that. And they didn't listen. They didn't take counsel from the command of Yahweh. By the way, that word command is mouth, literally. They didn't take time to hear God's mouth. Their failure to use the means of wisdom that God had provided them, their failure to acknowledge their own limited knowledge in the situation, then resulted in a direct violation of the Lord's command. Right? Their failure, let me say that again, their failure to use the means of wisdom that God provided, their failure to recognize their own limited knowledge of a situation, directly resulted in disobedience, high disobedience. Look at what they did, verse 15. And Joshua made peace with them and cut a covenant with them and let them live. It's almost as if the author is is just screaming, Deuteronomy 7 verse 2, Deuteronomy 7 verse 2, Deuteronomy 7 verse 2. And the leaders of the congregation swore an oath to them. Notice how their situation quickly unravels, though. Verse 16 continues. Now, it happened at the end of three days after they had cut a covenant with them that they heard that they were near them and that they were living nearly among them. Then the sons of Israel set out and came to their cities on the third day. Now, their cities were Gibeon, Asherah, Baroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the sons of Israel did not strike them down because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by Yahweh, the God of Israel. And the whole congregation grumbled against the leaders. Notice, once again, the people are grumbling again against their leaders. But they they do have reasons to grumble. Why didn't you guys ask better counsel before you took this covenant and took this oath? And, and perhaps, why, why are they grumbling? Perhaps they're grumbling because they're afraid of being under the wrath of God. That's a legitimate concern. But also, they're probably grumbling because now they do not get to raid Gibeon, a royal city. A city filled with plunder. And, and perhaps they're even murmuring, saying, Listen, the covenant is null and void. They were lying. Why do we have to keep this covenant? Or perhaps they're grumbling because they're saying, hey, listen, we already failed. Why can't we just fail with style? (laughs) Right? We we do that all the time, right? Well, I've blown it. Since I'm here, might as well blow it some more. (laughs) But notice how the leaders responded. Verse 19, Then all the leaders said to the whole congregation, We have sworn to them by Yahweh, the God of Israel, we have so we, now we cannot touch them. Uh, this we will do to them. Even let them live so that the wrath will not be upon us for the oath which we have sworn to them. So the leaders said to them, let them live. Thus they became hewers of wood and drawers of water for the whole congregation, just as the leaders had spoken to them. Notice Israel took their oath very seriously. Why did they take it very seriously? Verse 12 or 20 tells us they know the devastating consequences of having God's wrath on them. Joshua 7 is not far away. And that's a good thing, right? We 
do not want God's anger on us anymore. We're not going back to Joshua 7. But also, verse 19, uh, they, they also know the significance of the name that they carry on their shoulders. We, verse 19, let's read that again. We have sworn to them by Yahweh, the God of Israel. We have sworn to them. God's name is on our backs. We carry the name of God, the fame of God, the reputation of God with us wherever we go. And that is significant. God's anger is significant, but God's name is significant. It matters to us. Our our actions, our actions, even though we wouldn't want them to be this way, our actions actually speak to others about our God. And that matters to us. Do you, do you feel that way? Do you feel that? You carry the name of Jesus with you wherever you go if you claim to be a Christian, right? Does that, does that matter? Is that weighty to you that, that my life actually speaks? Not perfectly, I know that, but it speaks. Even when, even when, when I fail, I'm carrying his name with me. How should I fail? But there is something else dripping out of this text. It's, it's surprising and it's unexpected. I'd even say it that. I'd even say it that. Very unexpected. Uh, look at verse 22. Then Joshua called for them and spoke to them saying, why have you deceived us? Saying, we are, uh, we are very far from you when You are living nearly in the midst of us. So now you are cursed, and you shall never be cut loose from being slaves, both hewers of wood and drawers of water, for the house of my God. So they answered Joshua and said, Because it was certainly told to your slaves, notice they were told, that Yahweh your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. Therefore we feared greatly for our lives because of you and have done this. So now behold, we are in your hands. Do as it seems good and right in your sight to do to us. Thus they did to them and delivered them from the hands of the sons of Israel and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day hewers of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of Yahweh to this day in the place which he would choose. In in many ways, I can't really draw out the application of this passage until next week. But until we get to next week... I want to just suggest to you a few implications, applications that you can take away from this passage that we've just uh, discussed. But, But that being said, there's a massive primary application that you will see next week. You'll have to come back for that. But, but until then, just a, a few applications, a few applications. Uh, number one, what do we take away from this? Number one, you will, you will fail. Foolishly and often when you disregard God's means of wisdom 
in your life. You will fail foolishly and often when you disregard God's means of wisdom in your life. I love the quote. It's by J Street, but of course he's quoting from Stuart Scott. But since I'm quoting it, when it goes through like three levels of quotes, then it becomes my quote. Uh, And and it's like this. uh, Sins of commission, doing something, acting out something. Sins that you commit are always preceded by sins of omission. Sins of commission are always preceded by sins of omission. Or to say it the other way, first you omit something in your life, and then you commit something in your life. First, Israel omitted to pursue the means of wisdom that God had given them, and then they committed a grievous sin against their God, didn't they? That's what we do too, right? First we omit, and then we commit. What are the means of wisdom that God gives you in your life? Number one, God's Word. God's Word aims at so many things in your life. It aims at your mind. It aims at your affections. It aims at your attitude. It aims at your faith. It builds up your faith. It strengthens you in your faith. Matter of fact, Psalm 119, 104 says this, From your precepts I get perception. Therefore, I hate every false way. From God's word, you grow in your hatred for the small sins, for the acceptable sins. All, all of Israel's woes would have ended with the simple question, but what does God say about this? All of their woes. Or how about this means of wisdom? First, you've got God's word, and secondly, godly counsel. And godly counsel isn't just anybody who has a Bible that's, that's talking to you. That's not godly counsel. Godly counsel are people who know you well, and they know the Bible better. And they can help you rub the Bible into the pores of your life. And they know you well enough to know exactly what kind of blade of Bible to use on you. That is godly counsel. I don't have time to probably read all of these to you, but write these references down and look them up later. Proverbs 11.14 talks about victory coming from many counselors where there is no guidance, the people fall, but in an abundance of counselors, there is salvation. Or or look up Proverbs 15.22. It talks about how many counselors bring success. Or look up Proverbs 20, verse 18. You, you can see, or you can save yourself from costly, painful, foolish mistakes in your life, all from a willingness of listening to godly counsel in your life. All from a willingness to say, hey, I might not totally see myself correctly here. You can save yourself from all sorts of pains. You can, in one sense of the word, find salvation from a grievous mistake, a horrible error. Or, or here's another a means of wisdom, not just, not just God's word, not just godly counsel, but I also say a means of wisdom is, is a Godward posture, a Godward posture. It's an attitude towards God and towards life and towards yourself 
that's, that's distrustful of yourself and trustful of God. By the way, this is the key that ties God's word and godly counsel together. What is your attitude towards God's word? What is your attitude towards godly counsel? Um, Proverbs 13.10 says this, With arrogance comes only quarreling, but with those who receive counsel is wisdom. There's a sense there that you need to have wisdom to get wisdom. Yes, you need to have a, a Godward posture, a Godward posture, attitude. I do not know everything. I need God's wisdom. And he may just give me that wisdom through someone else. Uh, a, good, a good commentator says this about this. Uh, we need not only the power of God to overwhelm our obvious enemies, but we also need the wisdom of God to detect our subtle enemies. Do you have enough wisdom to ask God for wisdom? Do you have enough humility to receive godly counsel? That comes from a Godward posture. You will fail often and foolishly when you disregard God's means of wisdom in your life. Here's another application. Uh, God still, though, calls you to faithfulness in your failings. God still calls you to faithfulness in your folly, in your failure. Or maybe restate it a little bit. Only rarely... Does God give you a consequence do-over? You almost always have to live with the consequences of your actions. Sometimes you have to live faithfully to God after you fail and, and in your failure. And, and maybe you're kind of confused about what I'm talking about here. But that's because, you know why, that's, why that is? It's because most of you are looking ahead at failure not behind at failure. Believe it, believe it or not, most of you are going to fail in the future, and you're going to feel very guilty for that, right? Or, for example, maybe, maybe there, it'll be a failure with drugs or alcohol that have uh, lifelong effects. Maybe it's a, an arrest. There's some dramatic things for you. Maybe it's you have a baby out of wedlock. Or, or here's an obvious example that really helps me. And maybe uh, you are young and in love, and your high school sweetheart is everything you dreamed him to be. He's the best. He drives a cool car, and he's not bald. Those are the two things. <laughs> but the only problem is your high school sweetheart doesn't have Jesus as his high school sweetheart. And that's not as important to you back when you're deciding who you're going to marry. What you're, what you're concerned about is, does he like me? Does he listen to me? He likes to talk about Jesus sometimes, and he's okay with coming to church with me. He must be a Christian. But then you're in marriage, and it's a bad marriage because he doesn't care for the Lord like you care for the Lord. And then you realize, I'm stuck here. Right? The Bible actually doesn't give you a free out. Matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 7 says you should live with him if he's content to live with you. It goes the same way for a guy as well. And you need to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ even after you fail. Even after your parents also lay down the gauntlet and give you all these consequences for doing something stupid, you still need to live faithfully after you fail. Why do you need to live faithfully? Well, because, remember this, you carry the name of the Lord Jesus Christ on your back. And you are a sermon about your God. 
even in your failure. You won't be able to escape such situations as a Christian. Matter of fact, sometimes being a Christian makes such situations harder at times, to be frank. You, like Israel, need to be faithful even in your failure. The question is, will you love Christ even after you have sinned against Christ? Will you still say, I'm going to be faithful? Because you, you, you can do that. You can love Christ. You can be faithful to him ultimately because you know that his love and his name are still on you, even in your sin. And here's the truth of the gospel for you tonight, right? You are as much a child of God on your best day as you are on your worst day. God's love doesn't change, but are you going to love him in the same way? Now, I suppose you could flip this application on its head and turn it over. And for you, all of you guys are looking ahead at your life, looking ahead of all your failures. There could be an application here of, you know, hey, how about you marry wisely, marry well. Because you have to be a Christian in everything that you choose to do. Your job you have to be a Christian in. Your marriage you have to be a Christian in. Everything. God wants you to carry his name. You must be faithful in all of your life. One more, one more. If you'll bear with me, I actually cut out one application just because I knew it would be long. Final application. More times than not, more times than not, you will back into God's grace more than you will find it in this life. More times than not, you will back into God's grace more than you will find it in this life. Or you could say it like this, notice, God saves sneaky salesmen. It's striking to me. Is it striking to you? Uh, Joshua 9, 27. I'd, if you ask me, this is the best curse I could ever get. Oh, what is their curse? The Gibeonites for all of their sneakiness. For trying to get away from the wrath of God and escape Him. What do they get? They get to be slaves in His house forever. Matter of fact, look at that. Verse 23. You will never be cut loose from this curse. This is an eternal curse. You have to be in my house forever. You have to be a, a, a hewer of wood and a carrier of water. Which is just a fancy way of saying you're going to do the most menial tasks. You're going to get wood and carry water. And by the way, in the temple, they needed a lot of wood and they needed a lot of water. Purification and fire. Those things happened all the time in the temple. You are going to be busy and you're going to be busy forever. You will forever be my slaves in my house. This is striking because these Canaanites, these Hivites, these Gibeonites who tried to sneak have backed right into the very grace of God, haven't they? And their slave service is permanent. God will keep them as his slaves forever. 
Matter of fact, these Gibeonites show up again during the days of David and the days of Solomon. And they show up again even in the days of Nehemiah. God has concern for them and he keeps them alive. What a, I would say this, what a blessed curse. And, and what a description of the gospel, right? There's this psalm. Psalm 84, verse 10 says this, Better is a day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would choose to stand at the threshold of the house of God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Isn't that the way God's grace works with you? He saves and gloriously enslaves sneaky sinners that are against him. And he converts enemies into his servants. He, he converts um, that girl that only goes to summer camp because her parents make her go to summer camp. And she goes there angry. But at that summer camp, she hears of Jesus despite her sin. And he saves that man whose attention is all distracted. Matter of fact, he's an atheist. He's a moral atheist, too, which is the worst kind, because he doesn't need God or want God or believe in God. And he starts going to the young adult college group because, well, there's a cute girl there. Matter of fact, it's a terrible church, but he starts singing in the choir so he can steal glances at that cute girl periodically when the director's hands are down. And he saves that individual because that individual goes to church, hears the gospel of Jesus Christ, and is backed into the very grace of God because that's the way God's grace works. You don't find him, he finds you. And sovereignly brings you to himself. By the way, that, that last testimonial is, a, is the story of my dad, who, according to his journal, first noticed my mom as a, a peppy girl in the young adults group. I read it just last night. It was glorious. Uh, you come to God for other reasons than yourself. You come to God for reasons of his grace and his grace alone. And when you see his grace on display in your life, what do you say? You say, love so amazing. You say, love so divine. It demands my life, my soul, my all. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, thank you for this day. Thank you for this message. And we pray that we would be faithful even in our failures. But we pray also that you would guide us in your counsel and keep us. Keep us from anything that displeases you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.